This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. This is the sound of your brain firing. My life's work has been to connect these brain waves to machines. Between your temples lies a machine more marvelous than anything else we know in the universe. Phil Kennedy's original research was pioneering. My short-term goal is to help people who are locked in to communicate. It gave him a reason to live. This had never been heard of before. What, you can control a device with a brain directly? He wanted to do something to stay a step ahead. I decided the best thing to do was to implant myself. He told me himself, and I said, you're kidding me, right? It's my brain, and I can do what I like with it. The biggest risk was that I might lose it all. I set about recording for myself, and we got signals. History will look at what Kennedy's done and say that was the start of something important. I think it's part of the evolution of the human race. The goal is implanting devices in humans. We'll be able to decipher the contents of our minds, the contents of our thoughts, and manipulate them. Who gets the brain implant and who has the controller? This is frightening. The technology we're developing should be used to help people. Our brains still have immense potentialities. Right now, I look at it and I'm just beginning. Come on, sissy that pod, let's get thickening! Are you a fan of the Emmy award-winning show RuPaul's Drag Race? Do you think about Roxy Andrews at the bus stop? And do you belong in Party City? Well, Sissy That Pod is the podcast for you. Join me, James, and my co-host, Keen. Is there something on my face? As we chat weekly about the runway realness, sickening shade, and backstage buffoonery. That's right, whether it's new episodes of Drag Race US, UK, or All-Stars, Sissy That Pod will spill the tea with a new episode for you within 24 hours. So make good choices and subscribe to Sissy That Pod from the Headstuff Podcast Network and we'll leave you gagging on our eleganza. Now, let the music play! Uh, hello everybody, and welcome along to FNI Rap Chat, um, the Irish film and TV industry podcast. I'm Paul Butler-Lennox, and you're all very welcome to this very special episode. As always, our podcast is brought to you by Wildcard Distribution, film equipment store on Octavid.com. This episode is produced and mixed by Larry McGowan, and if you'd like to support the show, you can subscribe on Headstuff Plus, or visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash FNI, and you can purchase a coffee or or become a member if you really, really like what we do. Today, um, this is a really, uh, this is a brilliant opportunity to talk with a, a really fantastic um, neurologist and trendsetter, um, um, gen- all-round gentleman, judging by what I've seen uh, in the documentary. Um, Phil made global headlines in the, la- in, 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 you know, in the last 20 or 30 years for implanting uh, wire electrodes uh, into the brains of locked-in patients, including himself. Uh, he's not locked in himself. Um, 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 and he's been compared uh, in terms of his impact to Alexander Graham Bell. Um, um, Phil became known as the father of the cyborgs. Now, how he feels about that, we'll get to a bit later. Um, 
Uh, he's done some inc incredible work in terms uh, of his field of research and the, uh, the film Fa Father of the Cyborgs is released uh, this weekend in Ireland and we're, we're joined today by director David Burke and the main man himself, uh, Dr. Phil Kennedy. Gentlemen, how are you? Not too bad, thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, thanks for stopping by, as it were, virtually. First of all, um, Phil, how's the head? My head is fine, thank you. It's still on my <laughs> shoulders. That's the main thing. <laughs> Great. And no, how has it? No, no after effects. I'm fine. Okay. And how are you? Uh, how has the last year, uh, year and a half, been for you? Two years. Jesus, at this point, nearly. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> what I did, I, the electrodes came out. And the electronics came out in 2015, and I've been mm -hmm. working on the data for many years since then and figured out how to uh, decode silent speech. And mm -hmm. so um, in the last year or so, we're trying to raise funds to continue on the research. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, always problematic. When you're trying to go from basic research to uh, applied developmental and eventually selling devices like this to locked-in people, it's a big, they call it the big chasm, because it's very hard to jump from one to the other, uh, from one side to the other side, um, as you can imagine. So mm -hmm. we actually started up a, a foundation, the Silent Speech Foundation, and we also, you know, so people in the U.S. get a tax exempt if they donate to that. And we also have a company, Neural Signals, that is stock, and we're prepared to sell some of the stock to raise funds. So okay. And putting in some personal funds as well. Yeah, I mean, your relentlessness um, uh, and integrity is, I mean, it's, it's clearly there for all to see in the film. And I, as well as, you know, it, it looks beautiful as well. I mean, it, it, I, it was a really entertaining, entertaining as well as um, um, imp important watch in terms of uh, future, in terms of our future relations with technology. Um, uh, I'll just ask you, I'll ask you, um, um, just quickly there, Dave. After screening at um, at DIFF, the Virgin Media Dublin International Film Festival, and then at Tribeca, how important is it to finally see it um, with an Irish audience or to have an Irish audience um, see it and send it out into the world finally after all this time and gestation? Yeah, it's great. I mean, a lot of the festivals that we've been in so up to this point have been online. So this is actually the first time we're going to get to see it in a cinema as well, which is kind of nice. But you're right, it's, I think one of the nice things about this documentary personally is that I think Phil deserves to kind of get a lap of honour and he deserves to get recognition oh. for what he did. So I hope kind of <laughs> it was tough, but it's true. But um, it, it's, you know, I don't think if you stop people in the street, they may not have known who Phil Kennedy was before this. So hopefully he'll get some recognition from that. Hopefully from that, he'll be able to, you know, kick, maybe get some more funding for his work, you know, but as I said, he's meant to, he's started right. up his GoFundMe page and stuff like that. So if the documentary can help even in that little small way, that that, that it, it will, will have succeeded in its own little way, I guess. Um, but oh, yeah, absolutely. it's nice to have it done. There's been a lot of work, so it's, it's nice to have it finally out there for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah I think you it's... You deserve the lap of, lap of honour, David. You did a great job putting this together. You did. Or we're going to a mutual... <laughs> the Mutual Appreciation Society. Um, now, I think both of you need to be commended. I think it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful story. Tell us a little bit about the collaboration between you two and how that came together and how you came together to work on this. 
um, I think I first came across the story. I was researching this area in general. I, I kind of, you know, if you go into a bookstore, you see books of psychology, neuroscience. I kind of had an interest in it in, in general. I mean, I'm not an expert, okay. certainly not or anything like that. But I just came across a little story researching this area, and I just got, got in contact with him. And despite all this kind of surprising twists and turns in it, I think the thing that still, still surprised me the most was I just had automatically assumed that Philip would have to be an American. But like I'm from Ennis, the Phyllis from Limerick, so that just kind of even sweetened the deal even more, I guess. <laughs> um, well, you're prospecting for gold and you found you found a nugget as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, it's like we initially got development funding from Screen Ireland. And I think it's a really good idea, development funding, because A, you get to put together a little teaser that you can, you know, uh, present your project to potential funders. But it's also a way of getting to know. It was also our way of getting to know one another before we actually started the documentary possible, or proper rather. So I think that was really important. So by the time we had the funding in place, we'd probably been talking a year or 18 months at that point. So I think that really helps. So when we were, when we did start properly, we really required to hit the road running. Yeah. It seems as if you, like even judging by now, um, just seeing you interact now, it seems as if you've created... Um, a really good uh, working relationship and a shorthand and I think that's reflected on screen as well I mean uh, Phil you seem really really comfortable in front of the camera um, I don't know if that uh, you worked upon that or uh, this is something that came natural, naturally to you well he just asked me a question and I answered <laughs> that's what it comes down to just be straightforward with your answers and that's it mm. how how has the film been perceived so far well, Pardon? um, it hasn't really, David, you, you go ahead. Okay. I'll shut up. No, I'll, I'll, I'll quite, if you want to jump in. But yeah, I think, um, so far the film has been received really well. I think mm -hmm. pretty much all the reviews are really good following Diff and following Tribeca. So hopefully that'll continue, but so far so good. I mean, I think it's got a 100% rating in Rotten Tomatoes. If, if that means anything, probably not. Well, it's certified fresh then, isn't it? I guess. It is, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what people want to hear. Um, Phil, I might ask you just um, um, just going back a, a few decades now at this point, um, did you ever think, were you always relentless in your pursuit of, of, of your tasks, even from a young age? Um, were, you the la were you the last guy off the training pitch when you were a kid or um, in terms of leaving cert, were you the, you know, were you the kid who everybody was asking for tips and pointers, or what kind of kid were you? Well, my mother always said I was stubborn, and I said, no, I'm persistent. There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. So, yeah. So the only thing in college, in medical school, was that um, people would always ask me about the brain, because mm. I was always interested in it. The rest, I was okay. You know, I wasn't top of the class by any means. Um, I just really liked to understand the brain because it is the most important organ in our body. It's a great frontier. We know a lot about it now, a lot, but mm -hmm. never enough. Um, we'll never know enough about it. So, yeah, I was, um, uh, you know, I played rugby and did all the usual things you do in college. And um, it, I guess I was pretty persistent and I, I when I see issues like I did in the Simon community, look, trying to help out with homeless people, I, you know, thought we should go ahead and help out. <laughs> mm. It just seemed natural to me. 
Okay, you're, well, you're a man with who follows the courage, uh, who, who displays the courage of his own convictions. Um, do you think, um, what do you think are the dangers, the future dangers of not only your own research, but te technology in general terms, in terms of AI and, um, w you know, obviously there's incredible advances which can only benefit humankind of the study of the brain in general terms and what that can do. But um, what do you think the dangers are? And f uh, Phil, would you do everything? Would you do everything the same again? I would do everything the same again. Yes, I would. But there is a big danger and a big ethical danger here. Because underlying trying to help people speak and move and so on, there's also the issue of enhancing the human brain. And that cannot be selective. It must be available to everybody. Mm -hmm. And people say, well, I won't afford it. Well, we couldn't afford a cell phone at one time. And now everybody seems to have a cell phone. So, yeah, we must make it affordable. And it must be available for everybody who wants and needs to enhance the brain. So in other words, somebody made an analogy before, a very good writer. He mm -hmm. said that if, if the whole human race is a dog and people who need re rehabilitation are the tail, then we help them, but eventually the tail wags the dog. Instead of <laughs> us wagging the tail, the tail wags the dog. In other words, plays back to everybody else. The, um, and uh, So to me, to me, the ethical issue would be if it becomes selective and enhances people beyond the ordinary so that they uh, have access to information and uh, calculation ability and connectivity um, that excludes other people. You have to think that nowadays we do actually have access to our cell phone to um, a lot of information on the cloud. Mm -hmm. We have Siri over in the States, probably have something here, you can ask a question you can ask the latest sports results of such, such a team, or you can ask much deeper questions than that. Um, and and you can do calculations, but nothing nothing like what we could possibly do if we had uh, full access to all that information. Information doesn't make us wise, though, and wisdom mm -hmm. would be lost in information. In other words, yeah, if you've course. got all the information in the world, you won't necessarily be wise about how to use it, that's what I'm saying. So, mm -hmm. um, well, it's the experience of using the tools, isn't it? I mean, a toolbox of tools are, are irrelevant without yeah. the experience to apply to apply the uh, yeah. the the uh, experience. What have you learned about yourself during this? Now, this in terms of the project about each other and about yourselves, um, about engaging on this. What have you both learned about e yourselves and then each other? Um. You mean with David, right? With David, Working yes. With David on, yeah. On the oh, film specifically, yes. On the film, I thought it was wonderful. I mean, <clears throat> I was actually amazed <laughs> how much filming he did and how little turned up in that hour and 20 minutes. I mean, we filmed for, what, four years, David? And uh, he came over many times to the States and he went and saw people on the East Coast, the West Coast, people in Europe, people in Ireland, people in England. Um, it was just so thorough. I was amazed. And he dug up uh, archive uh, uh, evidence, like uh, movies from the 50s. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, was just, I was just really amazed watching it come together. And I've seen the earlier versions, obviously, you know, show me. Um, and he and um, David, you had an editor with you, and you guys 
figured out the best way to put it together. Um, and he was really easy to work with, you know. He would, um, he was very, very thorough. And he would film things from every angle at least twice. <laughs> David, you tell me what I, if you agree. I, there's, there's certainly a grain of truth in that, I guess, all right. Um, but I think coverage, coverage, coverage. Sorry? Coverage, coverage, coverage. Yes, pretty much. And in different locations, just to be sure, to be sure as well. Um, I think one of the things I learned from this is that, you know, we feel just spoke briefly there about enhancing brains and stuff like that. But I think one of the things that kind of I picked up from this whole kind of conversation is that this conversation itself isn't new at all. I mean, it, it, enhancing your brain, a cup of coffee enhances your brain and if you want to talk, if you want to think about it in those terms. But if you go and kind of go way back, I came across the story about Socrates way back when, and he, this, he didn't like the idea of writing because he felt that writing would uh, harm his memory. And mm -hmm. in some ways he was right because you do, you kind of offload some of your memories onto paper and your memory isn't as good. And probably a useful example is, think of phone numbers. People, you would remember phone numbers 20 years ago and now, Nobody remembers phone numbers, so a lot of people don't, because it's all, it's all just there. I've offloaded that onto their telephone. So it's about finding this kind of a sweet spot, really, where we have technology working for us, and we're not working for it. And if you think about intuition and creativity, that in some ways comes from your memory as well. So if we're offloading so much information onto technology, for example, yet you don't remember facts and figures that you just slip it up on your phone the whole time. There was a study done at Tulane University in the States, and it said that we actually are beginning to affect our, our, our memory, but also our creativity and intuition because of this. So it's mm -hmm. just there are these unknown consequences of technology that we maybe we may not have predicted before we kind of go down this rabbit hole, I guess. But yeah, I think so. It's, it's the question of degree, not a question of will we enhance, it's a question of degree, really. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, when you think of something as basic as hand-to-eye coordination and handwriting, how infrequently we actually use our handwriting, it becomes it's almost becoming like an alien concept to adults because we're, you know, we're doing that pretty consistently. Um, think about it again. We didn't evolve to write either, handwriting. Like our ancestors thousands of years ago, they didn't write. This would have been yeah. completely different. The brains would not have been rewired back say 5,000 BC, to, or even further back again, to write. So even what you said is a technology in itself and is not something that we really evolved technically to do. Yeah. D uh, David, I might ask you what kind of, you know, you, like the finished product is, I believe, in looking at, and, uh, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't always say this about everything that we view, but I, I, I think it's an exceptional film. What kind of um, obstacles did you overcome making this? What challenges did you have? Um, and what have you learned? What have you learned in that regard? I think these putting next together anything like this is kind of like it's just a hundred little battles that you have to win. There was no insurmountable little challenge, but it was just a hundred little battles that we had to win. Be it finding archive, or just finding contributors and finding the right contributors. It's just kind of persistent as much as anything else. And then you, when you get that little aha, eureka feeling, you know you're on the right track, and it's kind of keep. It's kind of persistent and keep going and keep looking until you're happy with everything. I mean, just a, a random example that I can give is Simon O'Reilly, who did the music, and I think the music in this is he did a great job. And I was mm -hmm. shooting the breeze with him one day, and I don't know if you know, if you're familiar with that, but it's an unusual instrument called thermon, and it's usually like a bar, and people you weave your hand in and out, and it makes kind of this weird kind of oscillating noise, like, ooh, like that. 
And I asked him, and it's in the it's in the opening track in the in the introduction music. And I was like, you don't have a thermal by any chance, Simon? He goes, I actually do. I sampled one a couple of months ago. So it's just little things like that, just by kind of firing in a foot at the wall and having some stick. And the thermal works great in the opening kind of in the in the opening track. So just a kind of hundred little battles like that. Again, we just we were looking for archive and we found some of the predecessors of Phil's research was. It was about studies with rats coming long story short, but we actually found footage of that scientist. It was, and again, it was just by persistence that we found that footage and it just worked a dream into that sequence. Just, and there were two little battles. Yeah, I, I mean, little details of just bringing those to life. And then, the, the, you know, the, just some of the newer footage and, you know, stuff that JJ and, and Keith shot for you, like just really beautiful, just ties it all together really magically, becomes ethereal almost in parts, you know. Um, I thought it was really, really, it's beautiful. Um, how hard is it to um, interact with um, um, some of the detractors of the subject matter, uh, Phil, of, I'll, 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 to Phil this time? Uh, how, how do you deal with the rejection of some of your ideas and your research and the naysayers? How do you bounce back from that over the years and keep coming back strong? How, do, how does one do that? Well, what you have to do is think of <clears throat> their objections. Are they correct or are they not? And if they're correct, I'll go, you know, correct whatever I did wrong. And if they're not, um, I might argue with them, but just leave it at that. There's nothing. Science is a question of, of proposing a hypothesis, having some ideas, tossing them about, trying to get evidence. And the evidence may be strong or may be weak. It's never 100% strong. Um, but it um, you just take it as it comes. It doesn't bother me at all. I know a lot of people criticize me for self-implantation. And they thought, well, this was outside the pale. Well, okay. But I had a question to ask, and I couldn't answer it any other way. So I just went ahead and did it. I knew the dangers, right? And I took a lot of precautions um, ahead of time just in case the worst happened. Um, and I just uh, went ahead and did it. My uh, my family weren't too keen on it, my kids. Um, but uh, as my brother said, well, I was just going to go ahead anyway. So um, we talked about it later. They're fine. They're fine now. There's no problem. Gosh. Yeah. So you, you just have to. You just have to, like I said, look at the evidence. I objected to something, and to me, implanting myself um, down in Belize. Well. Okay, so I just went ahead and did it anyway. Mm-hmm. So. I love. Do you put any of that down to kind of Irish belligerence as well? <laughs> you know that kind of that. The, you know the, by nature. No, I'm going to get an answer for what for for that question I have, and um, um, I, it clearly it served you very well. Um, <laughs> um, what was the most difficult? Um, over, over your journey, sorry, Phil, again, um, over your journey over the last four decades, what's the most difficult part about uh, your, 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 your experiences in your research? What's the most difficult part? Is it what sacrifices did you have to make? Yeah, a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been very difficult. Um, like when you don't get funding, um, you get... Um, you know, I had to go back and get my MD. I had to activate my MD because I couldn't get funding. 
So I did that, and that was tough, but I enjoyed it, actually. And I still practice. And um, uh, that was that was difficult. And now, again, I'm out of funds. And I mentioned earlier on, we're trying to raise funds to Silent Speech Foundation and uh, setting stock in the company and uh, my own funds. I have some now, just a little bit. Uh, putting that in, and it'll it'll gather gather up again, and we'll be fine. I just feel very confident that we will be. <laughs> okay, I don't think it's a false confidence. I just just it, and this uh, whole effort sh- should help a bit too. I think um, I think uh, you're an eternal optimist, and it comes across in your in your demeanor. Even now, speaking on the phone, it's wonderful to see. Um, Dave, what what obstacles? Um, and did you have any resistance in terms of the story, in terms of your own funding and support from Screen Ireland or other companies? Um, was it an easy sell? It was an easier sell than my previous projects, anyway. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think, and I remember very early days when I pitched it initially to what well, I think was actually uh, Screen Ireland was probably the billing board still when I pitched it initially. I remember Sarah Dillon, who was the development offer officer at the time, and she was very enthusiastic about it. And mm. the same with Colin McCallaghan and RTE. So I had Screen Ireland and RTE both interested in in the very early days of the project, which I think really helped. So when I was applying for production funding for Screen Ireland, I already knew that RTE were going to back it as well, which was a big help. Mm. And then we needed one final piece of the jigsaw. We we're lucky. I mean, I just researched science funds, funds online and I found the Alpha Peace Loan Fund in the United States. They came in with a pretty significant chunk of the final budget as well. So, but it was, it was a slow process because you're, you're kind of waiting for the dominoes to fall, you know, waiting for one person, one body to get on board before you go back to the other one and to the other one. So, just take it. It's time consuming and you're not really getting paid for it as such, you know, so there is that. But that's, but if you, if you believe in a project and you think it's going to happen, you don't, you know, that's fine. That's kind of part of the course as well. But no, we were lucky. We I was able to get the funds together, like I said, between RTE and RTE, we were able to get Science Foundation and the Science Foundation Ireland involved as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think because just because there is kind of an education value to, to the story as well, and I think because it was slightly different, and Phil was a pioneer and Irish person, I think it all it, it all helped really. You know, I think that um, this documentary will become a staple um, in terms of uh, second second level education bringing the uh, making science and making biology and making the technology uh, as a mer- as merged ideas um, uh, to the forefront and will make those classes significantly more interesting for young students I think it's a wonderful um, it's a wonderful flag bearer in that regard um, I might just ask one or two because our podcast um, primarily goes out to a lot of industry people um, and, you know, students and um, people who are starting their own journeys in terms of film and TV. Um, David, what, avoid, what advice would you give yourself starting out um, do's and don'ts about uh, your own journey? I think what I would tell anyone is if you, have, if you want to start in documentaries, simply start. Find an interesting person and start making a documentary. Don't be waiting around. Don't be waiting for degrees. Sure, get your qualifications. That's great. Sure, get work experience. That's great. Just start. You learn 10 times more by actually making something than you will by watching someone else. It's just start. If you don't have a camera, use your phone. People have used, people have made documentaries on phones for TV as an example of what how far the technology has gone in phones. I think just start. There are interesting people everywhere. 
I guarantee you, you find interesting people in, in your locality that are far more interesting than a lot of people that are on TV at the moment. And I think you know that's an advantage because they'll just blow them out of the water if you give them a chance. And I think if you can even start, like I said, I mentioned, just put together a little teaser. This is how this project started. I start. I met Phil. I think we met in a rugby club. Phil was just over visiting Ireland. And I couldn't find a venue, so we met in an empty rugby club. I popped the camera down in front of him, and then I just pulled clips off YouTube just to dress it up a little clip. And that's where this mm-hmm. project started. So just start, and then if you can even announce. Again, I would aim, I mentioned that that clip was quite rough, but aim high. Just put together a really cool teaser that just knocks people, knocks their socks off. And then you can legitimately go to, say, look for development funding somewhere and say, this is what I've done, you know, just with my phone. Can you imagine what we can do if um, we have a little bit of funding to help us get this off the ground? Yeah, make make films, not excuses. Yeah, and I think find something that you're genuinely <laughs> interested in as well. Don't try to follow the trends that just because you think you might, you know, get something over the line, just follow something that you're genuinely interested in. It'll make it so much easier in the long run because it won't feel like work. You know, you'll be happy to invest your time in it. So mm-hmm. they be the two main things. Just start. It, it's it's simple as that, really. Um, just from a mindfulness point of view, um, I'll ask both of you the same question. Um, um, starting with Phil this time. Um, how do you deal with rejection? How do you, how do you, how do you look after yourself, Phil? With rejection, you mean? Uh, like Just a, even in terms of your own mindfulness, mindfulness over the years, and. Um, um, okay, for <clears throat> when you have a, an idea like I had about the electrode, and uh, tested it out in rats first, and realized that yeah, this will work long term wise then all the rejections are simply stepping stones to success. And you learn from each one of them. Like we apply grants to get grant funding from the NIH. And I had four and a half, $4.4 million worth of funding uh, from the NIH over the years. Um, so, you know, that's nice. But then I can't tell you how much I can guess. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but so... You know, you, you apply for a grant and they, they say, well, they don't like this or that. And you kind of look at it and say, well, maybe they're right. I'll, I'll fix that. Or maybe they're wrong. And you go hunting somewhere else. So, um, but... Do, like, you, do, do you allow yourself to get angry uh, based on those, those reactions? Yeah, some, yeah sometimes you get a, a bit annoyed because um, I'll give you an example. I, I was getting my FDA permission. Uh, and I and uh, I sent all this information up. They sent back 21 questions. I have to answer the 21 questions. Jeez. And I looked at them and I said, no, that's, that's okay, that's routine. And, and I looked at them and I said, um, oh my gosh, if they really read this, there'd only be 13 questions. And then I thought, well, that's easy to answer because I know the answer to the 13 questions already. So I put those in. And next time back, they had five questions left and I answered those. So... You know, you can you can turn it around. You don't get too mad for too long. <laughs> so the, log- the the logic the logical way of looking at it is thinking of it as a process of elimination, really, to get to where you want to go. Okay, exactly. You think of it that way, exactly. And yourself, Dave. I think it's a case of um, there are there are definitely similarities between science and making documentaries. Bill mentioned funding before, and also rejection. You know, people you know projects not getting commissioned, but. I think first and foremost is probably picking your battles, making sure that when you 
you know, you, when you start to develop a project, you know that it has a really good chance, that it has legs, and just really being kind of brutal with yourself. Like, is this actually good enough? Like, can you see this in a big festival, for example? You know, being really brutal. And it's just kind of having a... I always say that too many ideas are as bad as too... Too many ideas are as bad as too little because you need to really focus on one. But I think in order to come up with one really good idea, you need to kind of turn over lots of good ideas. It's almost like finding ideas is almost like a, ha- a habit in itself. Um, and so I think it's first picking your battles, make sure that you have a chance. And then, like, it's funny, when Phil was talking there, I was actually just thinking about before this project, I had another project that I wanted to do that didn't get developed funding. And I, I still think it's a good idea. But it's funny the way things work out, because I maybe they were right. Because I, I wouldn't have, maybe I would never have met Phil Kennedy then, you know? So, and I think this mm-hmm. is what would have been, this is a better documentary anyway. So, it's just, and you do learn from your from other projects that don't happen. There's, there's always something you can learn because a lot of work goes into them. You're even even practicing your craft, how to tell a story, you know, even if no one else gets to, to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, see, I don't want to go into too much detail giving away uh, um, spoilers, um, but it, it really is um, at a time where we live in such, you know, in a time of ambiguity and confusion in the world, I think it's... Um, it's um it's a wonderful documentary shedding light on the potential of what we could be as opposed to where we are now you know right um and i just want to congratulate you both for that and say that it's 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 an astounding piece of work and we all, our team really enjoyed it it's something that should be seen in the cinema so please go out and support it it's worth your time and it's most certainly worth your money um guys if you want to send us over the links of of how people might be able to support you phil going forward uh, we'll mm-hmm. put those um, in the in the description below, and um, um, yeah, just as from one dreamer to another. Thanks so much for your work, and sure. thanks so much, and thanks so much for 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 uh, the you know for both of your bravery in in, in, in your in both of your work in your fields. So thanks so much. And, Thank uh, you very yeah. much. Take take good care and continued success to both of you.